Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Appreciate everyone who's helped lead us in worship this morning. I've been blessed and led to worship our Savior, and I trust you have as well. Our study through Matthew has brought us to Matthew chapter 16. Um, if, you're, if you're using the black Bibles that are provided, let me get you a page number here. That can be found on page 821. So Matthew verse, chapter 16, verse 1. Last week, if you were with us in chapter 15, we saw Jesus was... In Gentile territory, the the region of Tyre and Sidon, and there Jesus powerfully displayed that he was bringing in the kingdom of God. Remember, by doing what we've seen him do several times, by casting out demons, by healing the sick, and he also miraculously fed a crowd. Just like he had done earlier in the land of Israel, now he was doing that in Gentile territory, and all this was demonstrating that Yes, he is the Jewish Messiah, but he has come not just for Jews only, but he has come to be the Savior of Gentiles as well. He's come to be the Savior of all who believe. And of course, we'll see that culminate at the end of Matthew's Gospel when the risen Lord Jesus Christ commissions his disciples to go out into all the world and make disciples of every nation, right? And so that was like a preview of that in chapter 15. But for now, here in chapter 16, Jesus is back in Jewish territory ministering. And in our text today, we're going to see that Jesus, it, really the, the, the flow of the text is, no sooner does Jesus get back into Jewish territory than who's waiting for him? But it's the religious leaders, it's the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're waiting to confront him. And so that's what we see here at the beginning of Matthew 16. And so let's read our text today. I'd ask the congregation once again to stand, please, in the honor of God's word. And I'll read verses 1 through 12. That's what we want to consider today. Let's hear the word of God. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Amen. Once again, may God speak through his word to build his church. 
Please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is Recognize the Truth. Recognize the truth. And by recognize, I mean see the truth, embrace the truth, and act accordingly, respond to the truth. In the passage today, we will see both the religious leaders and the disciples fail to recognize truth that was presented to them. And I pray that that will not be the case of any of us today. May the Spirit of God enable each of us this morning to understand, believe, and respond appropriately to the truth of God's Word. So we're going to work through the text today, and if you look in your bulletins, you'll see uh, there's two main sections, right? There's the the, uh, scene with the religious leaders, and then there's the scene with the disciples, and each one is a failure to recognize truth. So let's begin with the first point there, with the... With the religious leaders, we're going to see a failure to recognize that Jesus is the Savior King. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. A failure to recognize that Jesus is the Savior King. Look again with me at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, if you recall last chapter, it was scribes and Pharisees who came from Jerusalem to confront Jesus, right? This time, it's Pharisees and Sadducees who are challenging Jesus. Now, it's a surprise, really, to see these two groups (laughs) working together on this. The Pharisees were the theological conservatives, right? They were, the name means separate, right? That's what Pharisee means. They were the ones who separated themselves by strict observance of the law and the tradition of of, of their religious leaders, the traditions of Israel. The Sadducees, however, they were on the other end of this spectrum. They were like theological liberals, right? They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. You see Paul use that in the book of Acts, right? Um, they were more like the political expediency people, right? You know, they just kind of molded and did whatever would kind of keep them in power, so in, in one sense, it, it's kind of like we've got the Republicans and the Democrats here together, you know, because they together, the Pharisees and Sadducees form the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel. So they are the leaders, and, but they, they don't like each other and they very seldom work together, but here they're united together against Jesus, right, because they've actually come together to confront Jesus, and it shows, again, just what a... What a concern Jesus was raising among the religious establishment, right? And uh, Matthew doesn't say it explicitly, but we can, uh, we're on pretty good ground to assume that these men, these elite Pharisees and Sadducees, have come once again from Jerusalem, right, to confront Jesus. Because they, they're hearing the reports. They don't like how popular Jesus is getting. So this is probably an official delegation from Jerusalem, They don't like that crowds are following him. They don't like how he rejects the the tradition of the elders. Again, they see see Jesus as a threat to them losing power, right? And so, once again, it's like as soon as Jesus comes back into Israel territory, um, they're ready to pounce on him, right? They're ready to confront him, and that's exactly what they do. And verse 1 says that they've come to him in order to test him. 
right? You see that? In order to test Jesus, they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, let's talk about that word test for a minute. That's the same word here that Matthew used back in chapter 4 to speak of Satan testing Jesus. So like Satan, the Pharisees and Sadducees have come with evil intent. They want to discredit Jesus in front of the people, and so they ask Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. I'm I'm imagining their their attitude, the conversation went something like this. You've made some pretty radical claims, Jesus. You're claiming to be the Messiah sent from God. You're claiming to do what only God can do, like forgive sins. You're claiming that God is your Father. Now we want you to back it up. Now we want you to prove to us that God sent you. Show us a sign that proves that you are working and ministering with God's authority and with God's approval. That's what they're doing here in this confrontation. And I don't know how you feel about this, but but if you're like me, as you read this, you're kind of like, Seriously? Pharisees and Sadducees? You're, you're doing this? You're, you're asking for a sign? How can you do that? Jesus has been doing signs all over the place, right? He's been opening the eyes of the blind. He's been causing the lame to walk and the mute to speak. He's been opening the ears of the deaf and cleansing the leper and feeding thousands. He's been casting out demons. He's even raised the dead. How can you possibly need another sign? And Jesus doing all these things is not only showing that, yes, he's sent from God. But remember, those, those miracles, those, those powerful works, those are specific marks of the coming kingdom of God. So Jesus has been doing the very things that the Old Testament scriptures said the Messiah would do as he's bringing in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus has been doing. And so, again, I, I don't really understand their game plan here (laughs) but it just shows their and we'll get to that but it shows their unbelief and their rejection and their hatred of Jesus that they're just confronting him and they're just wanting to discredit him and they're wanting to silence him well verse 2 records Jesus's response to their demand for a sign he answered them when it's evening You say, oh, well, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You see, maybe some of you have heard this saying from history that I guess probably sailors coined. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors warning, right? People had figured that out about about the weather, what kind of what to expect, how to predict, how to interpret what they were seeing. And the religious leaders had learned this same truism. They know how to recognize the signs of weather, but not the signs of the times, Jesus says. In other words, they're refusing to accept the signs that are right in front of them that Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, you know what, you know, you understand what a red sky indicates, but you don't know what it means when the blind, the lame, the deaf, the mute are healed and demons are cast out. Yes, you do know. You know that those are signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. You know that those are indicators that the Messiah has come and yet you refuse to believe. 
you will not accept that I am the promised Messiah, he's saying. And so Jesus tells them in verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, this is the the same thing that Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees back in chapter 12, right? In case some of you are saying, I feel like I've heard this before, right? I mean, verse 4 here is almost verbatim a repeat of 1239. Because back then, the scribes and Pharisees, again, were saying, we want a sign from you to show that you're from God. So back then in 12, and now here again in Matthew 16, Jesus says, you have seen the signs. I've given you enough signs. I'm bringing in the kingdom of God, but you will not believe. You will not accept the signs. Why? Because you're an evil and adulterous generation. And if you recall, that phrase, evil generation, points to an evil heart of unbelief. It harkens back to the generation of Israelites who saw God powerfully deliver them from bondage in Egypt, but they did not trust that God would defeat the Canaanites and and give them the promised land. In other words, they didn't believe God would keep his word, so they had evil hearts of unbelief. And Jesus is saying, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you're exactly like that unbelieving generation. You have an evil heart of unbelief. So he not only says they're evil, but notice he says they are adulterous to demand another sign from Jesus. Adulterous, right? That's a strong word. But by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, they were committing spiritual adultery against God. Right? Think about it. God had been so good to the nation of Israel. He had entered into a covenant with them. He had given them his law. He had promised to send them the Messiah to to deliver them and to rule over them in, in righteousness. And now God has kept that promise. Now Jesus the Messiah is right there before them bringing in the kingdom of God. And what are they doing? They're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the king that God had sent. They're being an adulterous people. Rather than embrace Jesus as king in worship and and in obedience to God, the religious leaders of all people had rejected Jesus. Why? Why? Think about that. Why are they so intent on rejecting Jesus? Why are they not at the front of the line just saying, this is great, you know? Well, like I just mentioned earlier, they have their own selfish motives, don't they? They're wanting to hold on to their idols of of power, of greed, of pride. And so they're they're an adulterous people. So we see, again, a failure to recognize that Jesus is the Savior and King. And in your notes, I, I, underneath that, I listed a cause. What is the cause of this? Well, fundamentally, it's stubborn unbelief. Right? That's why they're not recognizing that Jesus is Savior and King. It's not for lack of evidence. It's not for lack of signs. I mean, Jesus has been fulfilling Scripture all around the place. But the reason they will not recognize it, embrace it, is their stubborn unbelief. And again, you could break that down even further if you wanted to dig deeper and say, well, it's pride. It's them loving their sin, loving their positions of power. Right? 
So Jesus says in verse 4, I'm not going to perform signs for people who are committed to unbelief. I'm not going to jump through your hoops. I've, I've done enough. But you will get one more sign, he says. The sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, just like God delivered Jonah out of the belly of the great fish, Jesus is saying, soon God will raise me from the dead on the third day. And so, yes, there's one more sign coming, and it's going to be a doozy. God's going to raise me from the dead. That's going to be the ultimate sign, the ultimate evidence that I am the promised king sent from God. And so that reminds us, you know, the, of the, the centrality of the cross and the resurrection, right? That was the ultimate sign, the ultimate proof, the ultimate evidence of who Jesus is and what he had come to do. And it, it was a sign that people saw, just like they saw these other miracles and signs. People saw Jesus die on the cross, and they later saw him alive in a resurrected body. And so they knew that he was the Savior King. They knew that God had raised Jesus from the dead. They knew that this proved that he is the promised Messiah. He's not abandoned by God like we thought. He's not under God's curse like we thought. No, he is approved by God. He's been vindicated by God. He is who he said he claimed to be. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior King. And so once again, I'd point you to the word of God. We have that same sign. We weren't there to see it in person, but here in God's word, we have the, the testimonies of eyewitness accounts of people who saw Jesus die and saw him alive. People who knew that he was not a ghost. People that knew this wasn't just some kind of figment of their imagination. They touched him. They ate with him. They, they heard him teach. And so, once again, may God help us not fail to recognize what this is saying about Jesus. That Jesus is the Savior King. May everyone believe that and understand that. Kids, adults, understand that today. Jesus is the Savior King. He has proven it by dying on the cross and rising again. Jesus has defeated sin and death. He rose again and he's ruling now from his throne in heaven. And one day Jesus is coming again to get rid of all sin and remake this world. So Jesus is king and he's the only savior. He's the one and only savior. On the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of all who believe. He took the punishment that we deserve because we are sinners, because we disobey God. But Jesus, in, in grace and love, God sent his son to die in the place of sinners that we could be forgiven. That all who would turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ alone will be forgiven, will be cleansed, will be given eternal life, and will be raised with Jesus when he returns. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. 
We need to worship him. We need to trust in him. We need to agree to live for him and follow him in obedience. And so we too have been given signs. We've been given the evidence here in the word of God. We have proof that Jesus is savior and king. And so I ask you, have you recognized it? The religious leaders failed to recognize it, right? They failed to embrace it. Have you, answer that for yourself, have you recognized that Jesus is Savior and King? Are you trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life with God? Have you joyfully submitted to Jesus as your Lord? If you haven't, then you're failing, you're like the, the Pharisees. You're failing to recognize that Jesus is Savior. Maybe you're failing to recognize that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Maybe you're failing to recognize that Jesus is Lord. You're failing to understand that one day we will all stand before Jesus. Right? Because He's Lord. He's, he's been exalted to the throne in heaven and he's coming again to judge this world. And one day every knee will bow before him. And we'll all have to give an account for what did we do with Jesus. <laughs> did we embrace him? Did we trust in him? Did we follow him? Or did we fail to recognize that he is Savior and King? May the Spirit of God Enable each one of us to recognize, to joyfully embrace by faith that Jesus is Savior and King. So, sadly, the religious leaders failed to acknowledge that truth. Therefore, verse, in, verse 4 ends with these ominous words. So he left them and departed. Right? So Jesus says... I'm not giving you any more signs. You'll be given one more sign, the sign of Jonah. And then he just turns on his heels and leaves and actually gets in a boat and sails to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But look at those words. He left them and departed. This is no doubt a physical description of Jesus leaving the area, but it also marks a decisive break, Kind of a, a new chapter in, in the flow of the gospel of Matthew. We're entering a new phase in the story. I mean, for several chapters here, really, for most of Jesus' public ministry, he's been ministering in Galilee there in northern Israel. And that's coming to an end. He's gone from town to town. He's brought in the kingdom of God. He's preached. He's done everything I've been talking about. And he's, now that's coming to an end. There's a judicial tone, I think, to the end of this verse. Again, not only is it tell, telling us physically what he did, but I think there's a kind of a, a judicial um, theme here. In the Gospels, we see the principle that unbelief pushes Jesus away. Right? We've seen that Jesus left Nazareth, his hometown, when they wouldn't believe and accept him. Jesus told the disciples, when you go out and preach the good news of the kingdom of God, if people will not receive you, if they won't accept your message, you eventually just have to shake the dust off of your sandals, right? And go your way. 
God is patient, but there comes a time when he leaves those who continually reject his revelation. No more signs, no more revealing the truth of who Christ is. And so the Bible tells us in Hebrews, a couple of places in Hebrews, the Bible says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so once again, as I'm up here proclaiming to you the truth of God's word that Jesus is Savior and King, don't harden your heart to that. God has brought you today under the sound of his word to hear the truth of who Jesus is. That Jesus died and rose again to rescue sinners like us. That Jesus has has risen from the dead and he rules now in righteousness and glory. That he is Lord. And so embrace this truth by faith. Personally place your trust in Christ alone. Submit to him as Lord. Do not harden your heart. It's dangerous to continually reject that truth. Lest Christ would, lest the word of Christ would depart and no longer plead with us, no longer reveal himself to us. The the religious leaders were in that state. They had failed to recognize the truth about Jesus. And now let's move to the second scene here. In verses 5 through 12, we'll see the disciples have their own kind of failure. Sounds like a very negative message today, right? Focusing on people's failures. But nevertheless, God gives us these words to learn, learn from. So Jesus and the disciples get in a boat and sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. So apparently, again, I don't know if this was an, an abrupt departure, but whatever the case was, the disciples forgot to bring bread with them. But here in verse 5, Matthew is just kind of setting the scene. This is like we're kind of getting a narrator background information, right? I think here in verse 5, the disciples don't yet know that they don't have any bread. But Matthew's just cluing us in on that, okay? Verse 6. What, again, think about what just happened. The, the disciples had just witnessed this confrontation from the religious leaders. And so Jesus says, you know what? There's a teachable moment here. Right? I mean, this was a big deal, what just happened here with the religious leaders. And so I'm going to teach my disciples. I'm going to highlight some truth to them. And so in verse 6, that's what he does. He says to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Hmm. What? Beware of the leaven. What, is, what does leaven do to dough? Well, it, 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 it spreads, it permeates into it and spreads and changes it, right? It's pervasive. Only a small amount of yeast is necessary to leaven a whole loaf of bread. And so likewise, Jesus now here is warning the disciples of the powerful and corrupting influence of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so he's warning, he's saying, beware to the, to the disciples. He's saying, you need to guard your hearts. You need to hold fast to the truth of Christ. So this is a serious warning. The, he's warning them about matters of eternal consequences here. But look what they do in verse 7. And they begin discussing it among themselves, saying, 
we brought no bread. <laughs> I mean, this is funny, right? And again, I, I can see myself in their shoes. When the disciples hear Jesus say the word leaven, right? And again, Jesus is talking about these important matters. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What word did they grasp onto? Leaven. And they start thinking about leaven. Mmm, bread. You know what? I could go for some bread right now, you know? And wait a minute. Oh, no, we don't have any bread right now. And oh, what are we going to do? And, and who, who did this, right? I mean, you can just kind of picture them starting to squabble among themselves, you know, James, why didn't you pack any bread? And him saying, no, it wasn't my turn. Andrew was supposed to take care of it. No, no, it wasn't me. I bet it was Philip. He's always forgetting this kind of stuff. You know, and they just... Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so if you're a parent, if you're a, a school teacher, you can really sympathize with Jesus at this point, can't you? <laughs> you know, you, you've been there when you're trying to teach something really important and then it just goes off the rails, right? By some silly... Uh, unimportant distraction so you can understand the frustration that jesus is feeling when he says in verse 8 oh you of little faith why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread do you not perceive he's saying don't you get it do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the four thousand how many baskets you gathered how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says it again, right? Jesus is like, guys, I'm not talking about physical bread here. Stop worrying about the fact that you don't have bread. I've just fed thousands of people on two separate occasions. Don't you think I can take care of us 13 guys here in the boat? But think about what you've been witnessing. You guys were there for those feedings. You, you saw me multiply the bread. You were the ones distributing it. You were the ones gathering up all the leftovers. What was that teaching you about me? He's saying you need to be thinking about these truths. And not only that, you saw how the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, you saw how they have responded. You've, you've seen time and time again that the, the religious leaders have completely rejected me. And so you need to be on guard for them. They have a lot of influence. They're going to pressure you. They're going to try to influence you to reject me. Verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So at, the, at this rebuke, at this exasperation, they get it. And, and again, we are reminded how blessed the disciples are, how blessed we are to have these accounts. It's kind of like back when we were having the parables, right? It's like, they're getting this further instruction. They're getting this further explanation, even in the form of a rebuke. And the disciples get it. But before we leave this passage, let us seek to learn from their, from their blunder here. Again, I said they too failed to recognize something important. If you're taking notes, here's how I said it under point number two. The failure to recognize 
the danger of false teaching. And I wrestled with the best way to say that. Jesus warned the disciples to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, so it certainly involves false teaching. But I think you could also write, maybe next to it if you want, beware of the danger of opposition to Christ. Opposition to Christ. Fundamentally, that's what Jesus was warning the disciples about. He says, beware of the the teaching, the leaven, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, they had different types of teaching, but what they were united on, the Pharisees and Sadducees, was rejection of Jesus. A rejection of the truth that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And the disciples had witnessed this opposition firsthand several times. It just happened. And yet when Jesus warns them about it, they completely missed the point. Why? Why did the disciples fail to recognize the dangerous influences all around them? Think about this. What caused the disciples in this passage to not get what Jesus is saying? What caused them to not recognize the danger of the influence of the, those who are rejecting Jesus, those who are opposed to Jesus? Well, I have a couple of causes I want to give to you. And again, we know it all centers around our heart, right? But it's not the same as the, the, the scribes or the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? It's not stubborn unbelief. I mean, they've demonstrated they've got a lot of growing to do, and and next text is going to be kind of a, a, a benchmark in their understanding of Jesus. But they've demonstrated belief in Jesus So I think it's something different. Here's what I said. A preoccupation with things of this world. A preoccupation with things of this world. Think about it. Jesus gave them a spiritual warning, which they misinterpreted. Why? Because they they had a material mindset. (laughs) Right? They heard 11, and they started thinking about their, their bellies. And they shouldn't have been concerned over the bread. This scene here in Matthew 16 shows us that the disciples were completely absorbed in these temporal preoccupations. And oh, how often are we like that, aren't we? (laughs) Often we're just like the disciples. Unaware of the danger... Unaware of, what, of the stakes of what's going on. Unaware, unalert to the spiritual battle for our hearts and the hearts of those around us. Why? Because we're too preoccupied with the things of this world. We're more concerned uh, in, in, about uh, getting our physical needs met rather than caring for our souls. We're more consumed by entertainment and the cares of this world than we are to pursue knowing Christ and and. To pursue making Christ known. And Jesus has been warning us about that. About the thorns and thistles, the cares of this world that that creep in and, and choke out growth and life. Too often we're more focused on our private little earthly kingdoms rather than the kingdom of God. And as I say all that, I know that we have responsibilities. We, we have to be in this world, but not of this world. And so I'm not suggesting we neglect those, of course. 
right? We've got to go to our jobs. We've got to put food on the table. We've got to change the diapers and all that. But it's this preoccupation. It's this consumption with those things. And, and really, it's even doing those things, divorcing those things from the, the greater picture of living for Christ and of glorifying God. And specifically, in this case, it's not being alert to the danger, to the, to the spiritual warfare. In our scripture reading today from Ephesians 6, Paul talks about spiritual warfare, right? That's what he was talking about there in verses 10 and following. And putting on the gospel armor, and we're, we're wrestling against uh, principalities, evil forces of this world. And then in verse 18, he says, now listen to this. Ephesians six eighteen. After he's talked about the gospel armor, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, Paul says, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. There's Peter, right? He, he might even be remembering, wow, you know, we weren't, real, we weren't very alert back then in that boat. <laughs> we weren't alert to what the danger, what the stakes, what was happening, the battle that was going on here, the opposition to Christ. We weren't very alert. We were too focused on our next meal. And so let us beware of failing to recognize the danger of opposition to Christ. Satan uses different means to oppose Christ, doesn't he? I mean, he uses persecution, and, and, and certainly um, that is a serious thing, and I know um, it does, how do I want to say this? God, it does sometimes cause those who profess faith to, to, to abandon the faith. But oftentimes persecution sanctifies the church, right? But nevertheless, that is one of the tools of Satan. But he also uses false teaching. That's a big way that Satan opposes Christ. He uses false teaching. And that flows right out of our text today, doesn't it? Beware of the leaven of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He uses spiritual warfare. Satan uses the, the temptations of this world. All these things to oppose Christ, to pull us, to distract us, to choke out the word. We need to be alert to these dangers. We need to be abiding in Christ and in the gospel so that we can recognize false teaching and stand firm in the faith. Okay? So we need to be abiding in the gospel. We also, as we just saw from these other passages, Ephesians, 1 Peter, we need to be praying. We need to be praying for God to deliver those who are deceived. We need to be praying for the light of the gospel of Christ to go forth and rescue those who are trapped in the domain of darkness. We need to be praying for God to enable us to stand firm, to resist the devil and his schemes. That's what it says in Ephesians 6. Praying at all times with all prayer and supplication. Making supplication for all the saints. We need to be praying for each other that we stand firm. 
We need to be praying for the kingdom of Christ to grow. And so let me ask you something. Again, just trying to drive this point home. If you were alert, if if God gave you spiritual eyes to see, and you're alert to the spiritual battle that we are in, and the opposition to Christ that is all around us, if you were alert to that, how would, you, how would your prayer life change? Hmm? Would not you, would not I pray more fervently? And again, not out of, a, out of despair, because we know that Christ is the victor. But rather out of dependence. Praying fervently out of dependence, out of love for Christ, out of love for his church, out of compassion for the lost. There's something else in this account with the disciples that we should take note of. So not only is it a danger of of becoming too preoccupied, with, with temporal things, material things, things of this world that take our focus off what's eternal. Think about 1 John. The things of this world are passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. May God help us to keep our focus on Christ and his kingdom. But I see some, something else, and, and this will be our last point here. Again, we're still under point number two. Another cause, I think, of the disciples failing to recognize the danger was, and again, I'm I'm applying this now to us, strain from dependence on and confidence in God's word. Strain from dependence on and confidence in God's word. Let me show you what I mean. Here in Matthew 16, when Jesus was recounting the miraculous feedings to them, remember when he's rebuking them, he's saying, remember how many baskets, right? And he's going over it specifically with them. I think Jesus was not only saying, hey guys, I can provide all the bread we need. I think he was saying that, but even in addition, he was also calling the disciples to truly think about what they've been seeing and hearing And experiencing. Did not the miracles show that Jesus is is more than just a miracle worker? Did they not show that he's the promised Messiah sent from God? Furthermore, the feedings were showing the disciples and, and all who had ears to hear what kind of Messiah he was what kind of messiah he had come to be that he's the bread of life that he he'd come to give of himself for sinners to feed on him in faith this is the kind of teaching in john 6 that that jesus was giving when he was feeding the five thousand i'm the bread of life he's saying That he's come for sinners to feed on him in faith so that their eternal souls can be satisfied. And so what I'm saying is this whole failure of the disciples shows a spiritual dullness that they had. 
They're blessed to hear Jesus' teachings. They're blessed to witness his mighty works. But they need to be prayerfully reflecting on those things. The way we would say it is they need to be meditating on God's word. Right? Because isn't that a danger for all of us to get kind of this spiritual dullness? Right? We battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. So even, even within our own hearts, there's, there's always this battle against a, a hardness or a, a famili- familiarity breeding contempt, right? Uh, distractions from the world, from the outside. And so I think there's a principle here for us. There's a lesson here for us. There's a warning here for us. We who are blessed to be exposed to God's word again and again, may we not just go through the motions Oh, another Sunday, another sermon. That was kind of interesting. That one wasn't, whatever. (laughs) Another Bible study. All without this this awe of God. Without Without an awe of God's word. Without a responsiveness and a reflection on, on what the word is saying, on Christ, the living word. Oh, there's a danger. Of just kind of a, a dullness of just kind of a understanding it, but, but just, just enough. And, yeah. A danger of with not prayerfully seeking to understand and be changed by God's word. And so Christian, just let me ask you, have you grown dull to God's word in your life? Have you grown dull to Christ and his work? You're still exposed to it. You, you come to church, you read your Bible, but, but you'd have to admit there's kind of become a, a dullness and insensitivity to God's word. It doesn't stir your heart to love Jesus like it should. And again, maybe like the disciples, you've become preoccupied with other things. And so that's a big cause, again, of the dullness is just I, I don't, I'm not really taking the time to, to let it penetrate my heart very deeply. I'm just kind of shoving it in and going, right? Jesus is the good shepherd, and he loves us, and he's so faithful to us. And I, I think through this text, he's once again just graciously kind of hooking us around the neck and saying, Pay attention. Don't get dull. Have a responsive, sensitive heart to the things of Christ. Maybe some of us today need to repent of of spiritual dullness. And so in all this, let us stay dependent on God's word and confident in God's word. Because, again, and and I'm I'm influenced by the... um, by the lessons we're doing on Sunday nights with the, we don't have one tonight, but, but that we've been doing on Sunday nights with the young adults, the American gospel, and, and it's talking about the false teaching, the progressive, the progressives, the secular, the deconstruction, and time and time again, the testimony of these guys who have left the faith, a common thread you see in all their testimonies is they, they, they quit being in awe of God's word. They, they, they devalued God's word 
They rather elevated their own human reasoning and said, you know, I don't think that sounds right, you know, and, and, and the culture doesn't, says that isn't right, and so, you know, I, that's not what I'm going to believe. They elevated their human reasoning over God's word, and they end up just pretty much rejecting God's word outright. And so that's the point I'm trying to drive home with this, is there's a danger out there of, there's an, an ongoing opposition to Christ and the way to resist that danger, the way to stand firm against that danger is to stay rooted in the gospel and in God's word, to keep feeding on Christ, to keep humbly submitting to God's word, just as we sang, to be saying, speak, O Lord, cleanse me, strengthen me, renew me, show me my sin, show me my Savior, once again, daily. That's how God keeps us. That's how he keeps us strong and healthy. And so may none of us, again, fail to recognize who Jesus is, that he is Savior and King, and may none of us fail to recognize the danger of opposition to Christ, that we would continue to cling to Christ then, clinging to his word and clinging to him daily as the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and patience with your disciples. And again, we, we are just like them, Lord. Slow to grasp, slow to, uh, quick to, to grow dull. But we're so thankful that you are faithful, that you continue to, to minister to us. You continue to plow up our our, our hearts, you continue to draw us back to yourself. And so, Father, please accomplish your work today through your word. May you um, cause your people to rejoice in you, to refocus on you, to ign- be reminded of their dependence on you and your word. Give us all an awe for your word and for you. And please, for any here who have not recognized that you're Savior and Lord, will you open their eyes, show them the glory of of Christ crucified and risen, that they would trust in him and follow him and be added to your kingdom. We ask all these things for the glory of your name. Amen.